Welcome back to The Secret Life of Leaders, where you get unprecedented access to the inner workings of Australia's leading thinkers and practitioners at the forefront of environmental, social and governance change. The cutting edge of change can often feel lonely, but you're not alone here. The Secret Life of Leaders rehumanizes the experience of life and leadership and creates a platform for us all to learn and grow together. Let's dive in. Okay, it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Bronwyn Harch to the Secret Life of Leaders podcast. Professor Harch is a leader in research and innovation strategy with a passion for brokering transdisciplinary collaboration through private-public alliances. Professor Harch has had a long and distinguished career working as an applied statistician and data scientist focused on the monitoring and modelling of environmental systems within Queensland, across Australia and globally. She has significant research and innovation leadership experience, including most recently in the roles of Interim Queensland Chief Scientist and Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Vice-President Research and Innovation for the University of Queensland. Born in Queensland, Professor Harch is passionate about research and innovation and endeavours that make our communities more secure, resilient and sustainable. Professor Harch collaborates with senior executives in diverse organisational contexts that are focused on having science, technology and research, making a difference to delivering against the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Bronwyn, welcome to The Secret Life of Leaders. Hi, Ange. Thanks so much for having interest in speaking to me. Oh, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> I've actually invited you on The Secret Life of Leaders because of your results in leading complex programs of change. And at scale, across geographies, across industries, across government, across communities. And I'd love to learn about your approach to leadership and share this with our listeners and access a little bit of what goes on inside your your inner world. <laughs> I look forward to hearing it myself, Ed. <laughs> I never how I actually come, what I come up with. All right. Well, let's, let's explore that together. <laughs> so, Bronwyn, you grew up in Laidley in Queensland in our food bowl as the daughter of farmers. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your experience growing up and how that's led you into the career that you have today. Yeah, thanks, Ange. And hello to my folks, because my folks are still out there farming this morning. I'm sure they're out there breaking the frost off as they're doing the cabbage and cauliflowers. So yeah, I had the privilege of growing up on a veggie farm. And I think my kind of interest and curiosity, particularly around science, you know, came from that context, trying to understand the world that I was living in as a kid. And I have two, I've had two really striking kind of memories on the farm. I was the eldest, so I was expected to be down the farm. I was, I've got a brother and a sister, but being the eldest, I was expected to be down the farm. And one of the things that my folks got to me to do early was I was packing cabbages into these boxes. And I used to watch dad pack it and he'd be counting because he had to count the number of cabbages because that's how he got paid. And I noticed dad was always counting, mum wasn't. And, but, you know, they'd always get the numbers out. And I asked mum, you know, what is it that, why don't you count? Dad counts, you don't. She said, oh, well, it's mathematics from and there's five rows by blah, blah, blah. And I don't need to count. I just have to always pack the same kind of way. So it's kind of interesting. That was kind of my first, you know, practical mathematics lesson yes. uh, was from in packing cabbages. It's like learning the times table in a cabbage box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly what I was doing. So that was kind of interesting. And it was an interesting learning in itself, actually. And I think my other kind of great learning was from my dad. And that this relates to chemistry, actually. And it's he was, you know, trying to grow a crop and, you know, every insect known to man's out there. Then there's this, the rain, how much sunlight days you get and, you know, the, the way that he had to think about how to spray crops, how to irrigate them or not irrigate them, when to do things in the morning, when the wind was going more or not, all those kind of interactions was the way he had to think about how he was going to spray things because of all these biophysical issues. So it's really fascinating for me to see how his brain had to work that complex system to go out and do his day. So Absolutely, yeah. and probably so intuitively by the sound of it. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so how did that lead you into the career, having this experience growing up on the farm, into the career that you have today? Yeah, so when I was at school, I loved many different subjects and people asked me, what's your favourite? And I couldn't pick a favourite. It wasn't that I didn't, I hated schools. I loved it. I just loved every kind of subject I was doing. But the things I had the most kind of passion for were the environmental kind of sciences with geography and biology and chemistry. And I didn't I didn't realise that I really loved mathematics. I knew I was very good at it. I got the best kind of marks for mathematics. But what I came to learn was it was actually their interaction that really stimulated me. And when I went to university, I ended up doing an environmental science degree. My parents were very close to disowning me because this was the 80s and greenies and chaining yourself to trees and stuff was what they thought I was about to do, which I didn't do. But I found in the course that I did on environmental science, brought all these different subjects together. And finally, the world was making more and more sense to me because it was the interaction that was the tough bit. And that's, I think that's where it started for me of having all those different disciplinary perspectives, bringing it together. And the way to bring them together for me was through the language of mathematics and statistics. And so that's how I could pull the world together. Mm, it's so interesting. You use that for sense making. Perhaps the rest of us would struggle to make sense of maths and stats, but it's obviously a strength for you. With that in mind, the large scale collaborations you lead today, deploying scientific research to solve complex problems in the world, what have been some of your biggest wins and how has the interaction of maths and environmental sciences supported you there? Yeah, so I think about my kind of big wins as my big learnings, actually, because, you know, some days you win, most days you learn. So I wanted to recount, recount three. One's early in my career, one more recently. And the other is actually about people, not about the doing bit. It's, it was actually the people stuff. So early on, I was fortunate enough because people knew about, you know, my passion about, I was always someone who connected people convened people and catalyzed kind of action. And so it wasn't long before I was leading large-scale projects pretty early on, actually, because one, I was willing to do it and I was pretty good at the people bit too of how do you inspire people to come together on problems. So I was working on, I'd moved from Adelaide up to Queensland. The, my, I was working with CSRO. They wanted someone up in Queensland to help grow their business in environmental monitoring. And there was a major effort going on in southeast Queensland of monitoring water waste. And they were looking of how do they move from not just measuring physical and chemical attributes of the water waste, but also social and other environmental and biological. So, you know, what's the fish and the frogs and the people doing in relation to our water waste, not just the pH and the chemistry of the water? And so I was working with scientists from many different disciplines and we had to have a framework to bring all of this together to be able to say, if we do this with the treatment plan, if we get if we fence cows away from the riparian, the strips along the, the rivers, how are we going to improve water quality and the quality of the biology? Having dugongs eating the seagrass out in Morton Bay and stuff like that. And so I was the, the main statistician working with all these people, had all their different data, and I, somehow I had to bring it all together into a narrative and a framework to be able to show the impact of how the government would be investing in changing things in catchments. And so for me, the big win there was that, you know, I, was, I wasn't the lead, overall leader of this project, but I was kind of the glue that pulled it all together and I'm really proud of the way that I was able to work with those teams to make all that kind of sense. And I think the big win from it was that set up my reputation of being a trusted advisor, of being a good collaborator mm. and also being a good listener because I had to learn a lot of different languages from all those different disciplines. And so I ended up working around the Great Barrier Reef, working in Hong Kong, in China, and working on these same kind of problems then. So I think for me, the big win was being part of that first initial project that set up a pathway for, for other work. May we delve into you being the glue a little bit more deeply? I realise you've got a couple of other examples to share and yeah. I want to hear about those. Yeah. 
when you're the you're not the leader the leader of that project but you're the glue tell me a bit about that role and how you would describe it or characterize it yeah, I, I think that, and it came from being the lead statistician in, in the group because the frame to bring it all together was the statistical models. And so I had to understand everyone's kind of different indicators. We used to always talk about everyone had their shopping trolley with all their indicator, whether it was a frog or a fish or an insect or something. It was the key thing that was showing the health of a waterway. But, you know, the scientists were all very passionate about their one thing, getting into this monitoring program. This monitoring program still goes on today. And it's the key part that they celebrate when there's a river symposium in Brisbane every year for the Brisbane River. It's, you know, has this huge legacy. So people really, you know, they really wanted their science to be up in lights. But I had to use this pragmatic approach of, well, let's let the data do the speaking. And if you're indicated it, you know, doesn't do it well, you know, I do, I do, I do appreciate your science, but you could need to do a bit more. So I think it was this, there was a common frame I put together of objectives of what things had to be shown to be able to kind of move, move the dial on our ecosystem monitoring. And I think it was because I was a good listener, I was authentic in my interactions that I didn't tell them what. I thought they wanted to hear. I I did truth speaking with them of, you know, this indicator really isn't doing 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 any movement. You know, I, you know, I don't think you've got enough data. I think you haven't collected enough in space or time or et cetera, et cetera. So I think it was that truth speaking, listening, and also connecting people too, because often they hadn't worked together before. And I'd say, hey, you guys should be working together more. So I actually expanded their networks at the same time. Mm. So I think that were probably the three glue bits. That's gold. Thank you. And I also really appreciate letting the data do the speaking, particularly when you've got someone there with the statistical modelling that can make sense of it because it's indisputable then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Um what are the other examples you've got of well, those yeah, large-scale collaborations? Yeah, the more they're more recent ones where you know, as you get more senior in your leadership, you have to use this thing called influence. Or sometimes I say influence and charm. And so I was working in one organisation, and one of the things that I'd noticed was this organisation had a great reputation around agriculture and food. And, you know, we had aspirations for it to actually be, it's it's globally renowned, but, you know, I wanted to go from good to great with this group. And it was working with the different people within the organisation about their aspirations, so the leaders in ag and food, but also the emerging leaders too and what their aspirations were. And then importantly, working with the external funders and what their views of of the organisation was. So it wasn't just what they did, but it was how they did their research and innovation with partners as well to see kind of where the gaps were. And this kind of effort, it took a number of years. So it wasn't going from zero to hero in six months. But, you know, in the end, that what I was really proud of, and again, it was about it's about the legacy that it, it has happened for this organisation is... You know, if you stop and listen to the points that they've celebrated, the points that are their gaps internally and externally, it's finding the narrative and the pitch for a, for a new investment. So in this food and agri area, and I ended up doing it in two different organisations, but the capability was very different. At QUT, where I was at, they had a very strong effort around agriculture and food but they had this real technology base and so we ended up creating this big effort a cooperative research center around digital agriculture called the food agility crc and so we worked with our industry partners to get what the key things they need needed problem solved on and you know put together a pitch to government and so we won 50 million dollars from the federal government and we had 100 million from industry to be able to show that commitment. And that, you know, that took a lot of work within within QUT, then working through other universities as well to bring together the best team Australia around digital food. And that that food agility CRC, I, you know, I was there as the one of the co-leads writing the bid 
I was there for the interview and I was there for the first year as its research director. And I think the thing I was most proud of was that I walked away from it because I knew that it needed different kind of leadership from what I was able to provide because I'm I'm very, I know I can, I could have been there for the long haul, but I knew that where my interests were, were about catalyzing things. And I'm very good at seeing where these bits come together and making the pitch and making the case and getting the right people around the table. So we did that with QUT. And when I moved to UQ, I was also new of their prowess because Queensland's renowned for agriculture and food. And, and recently we put together another bid, very similar in terms of the, the things that you had to do, but it was on something completely different, which, which is on innovative ingredients. So think of, you know, new proteins, plant proteins, whether it's for your steak or your smoothie or whatever. And how do you actually produce a lot of these new foods in different ways from having circular economies? And again, it was so it was very complex because of the way that the, the teams had to come together and the different disciplines. So we had a, a major component from the business school leading this food and agriculture area. We had chemists leading a lot and we had the ag and food people too. So I'm I really love bringing together these different disciplines for them to actually realise they have got a lot to contribute. Often they don't, they kind of look at me and go, Bromino, I don't know why I'm here. Why have you got me coming to this meeting, talking to Nestle or, or talking to this startup company? And then it finally dawns on them, oh, she's connecting or sponsoring me to a whole new network of people that I hadn't thought about before. And I think that's the, like my third example is when I see people Oh, I didn't realise that my work could be connected or contributing in another kind of way. And I think that really floats my boat when I connect people into different places that they never thought about before. And uh, yeah, so that's so that's my three examples. There's so much value and so much to unpack in what you've just offered. And I agree as I've followed your career that connecting people is your superpower. I'm interested in you, you, these big collaborative efforts that you've pulled together. And as you say, you're involved in the initial connect, connections and writing the bids and winning sizable amounts of money to pursue those that research and solve those problems. You made it sound easy. <laughs> and in the beginning, what I understand is bringing multidisciplinary teams together who need to perhaps not understand each other fully, but they need to be able to understand the value of of collaborating at the intersection or beyond the intersections of their disciplines and the varied and competing interests of public and private stakeholders, the exploration and conceptual development around the problems you're actually going to solve. How do you navigate that complexity as a leader in those early early stages? Yeah, you've got to have good people alongside you. So I think what I learned pretty early on when I was in CSRO actually was what's the capability within the team you need, you know, to get this stuff done, this large-scale stuff. And so the scientists and researchers were important, but you needed more than them because you had to have the business understanding. So you had to understand what the chief operating officer or the chief financial officer was thinking about because they're, you know, in some organisations, they're the ones with the budget for this kind of stuff. Sometimes it's the chief HR person. So you needed, I, I call these people knowledge to innovation brokers. Some people call them research business development. So I think I've also been a big champion for these other kind of people in in the higher ed sector that they call them third space people, but they're people that do the connecting. It's probably right at the core of me on one of these people too, obviously, but it's having those kind of people alongside you that, you know, have the researchers and scientists thinking about the new knowledge, knowledge technology or practice they're working on, but you also have other people on the team that are back connecting to say, well, you know, does anyone really need a green mousetrap and, and testing that with industry <laughs> to see if they really need a green mousetrap. Um, so that's kind of not, and, you know, this comes to kind of probably the other thing that I'm passionate about is, is a shared leadership style. It's not 
always the one hero at the front that's doing absolutely everything to pull it all together. Because these complex things, when you think about the sustainable development goals, the world's to-do list, you, you have to have this shared leadership where you have, it's about people with the right expertise leading the right things. There needs to be, I think the leader in these kind of contexts is more an orchestra conductor. That's what what that's kind of what I see my role has been in these large scale things. An orchestra, orchestra conductor, you know, a cheerleader about, oh, okay, industry X, they're not ready for it. That's fine. You know, who's their competitor? Let's go talk to them or whatever the strategy, you know, coming up with strategies of when people are hitting barriers, you know, you're helping them go around them or, or don't worry, just give them a month and they'll be begging for us to be involved later once they've figured out what it is we're trying to do. So I think that complexity is navigated well by having the right teams with the right skills and respecting those skills for their expertise as well. Mm. Mm. It reminds me in the leaders that I work with professionally, there is a, a tipping or a turning point in their career where they realise I can't do this through my own disciplinary expertise and under my own steam and effort. I need a team. And they first realise that and then they realise actually it's more satisfying to achieve through a collaborative approach than under my own steam and effort. So you've turned that corner well and truly. You mentioned the sustainable development goals. What are the encouraging signs of change and how are the collaborations that you lead helping? Yeah, so I think the the SDGs, as I said before, is the world's to-do list and it's pretty confronting when you look at the report cards for each country and you look at Australia's actually and they, they use the traffic light system of green, orange, green, amber and, and red and there's no green on Australia at the moment and there's a bit of, or, bit of orange and a bit of red, of course. So that I found that really confronting I, I when I was working as interim Queensland chief scientist. That was one of the platforms I was using to you know, get people's attention actually mm. around some of these issues, and I the World Science Festival Brisbane, I went along and contributed to that as the interim Queensland chief scientist. And one of the most frightening things I've ever, ever done, and actually the thing that was such a gift, was I was on a panel with Fran Kelly and a number of leaders in the energy sector, renewables energy sector. So I'm not an expert in that area, but, you know, I was there as an expert about the research and innovation ecosystem. And when I reflect on things to do with our renewables around the SDGs, we have got all the technology. We have got all the technology. And what you've seen happening in the Queensland and Australian governments just recently is mobilising on getting the policy settings, starting to work on those policy settings in relation to electric vehicles, about hydrogen, thinking about the infrastructure for, you know, vehicles and things like that, thinking about solar on roofs. So I can see things moving and they're starting to now finally move at pace within within Australia. So that that gives me that gives me pause for, you know, positive reflection in that kind of context. Mm. And I think the other thing that's you know really important in sustainable development goals is around diversity and diversity of view and I, I think the voice that in Australia at the moment as we go through to that referendum at the end of the year thinking through and reflecting on for each individual will reflect on you know their views on the diversity of context for Australia so I think you know I, I see some really positive signs as I reflect on the Australian Queensland context. Mm, mm. So the technology platforms there, the policy platform is evolving and the diversity of collaborators you see is a key lever to achieve to greater acceleration of achievement. Yeah, mm. yeah I think mm. governments, you know, you're always thinking about you know, having to spend seven months in government, thinking about government's kind of role versus the private sector and how the community responds to it. And you can see how important government um, incentives are for business and for individuals. 
you know that that kind of stuff they've got to make they've got to make sure that their incentives aren't perverse of course and create some other kind of problem but there there is a key role in governments in addressing the SDGs and I think the other part that's really important of I often think about our ecosystem as a research and innovation ecosystem have five key actors in it let's see if I can remember them all so government you know research organizations corporates startups and SMEs and venture capital and all of those coming together working in around specific issues of the SDGs is kind of the that's kind of where I'm sort of firmly sitting at the moment and I'm kind of really interested of how you know a lot of startups a lot of young people and or people that have got to a part point in their career where they can consider doing startups which means they've got money behind them you know they focus on the SDGs um, kids in schools are totally motivated around the SDGs when I was going around visiting schools as the interim Queensland chief scientist. I didn't have to tell them anything about the SDGs. They they could tell me. So I think that's what gives me a lot of hope, I think, is that I increasingly I see those five actors and ecosystem coming together around goals because it's how they invest and prioritize things. You know, the government alone doing these things, you know, just isn't going to work. So mm. Good insights. And you're certainly the person to pull those actors together. And with that in mind, I'm wondering, and with the SDGs in mind, and being the glue connecting people across the innovation system, what are the sorts of problems that you're interested in leaning towards and solving at this stage of your career? Yeah, so that is such, at this point in my career, it's really interesting, because I'm having a bit of a career break at the moment. And I'm and I'm actually actively thinking about you know how w- with the experience that I've got where am I best placed, um, you know as someone has always been you know in this research and innovation space, so I've you know had that deep experience in research organisations, and have just recently been in government. So there's so many deep learnings from that period in government, even though it was short. I think because I'm more experienced, you get to get the learnings out of it a lot faster in terms of what you're kind of looking for. So I think in terms of I am really, you know, I've been reflecting, going back to my roots a bit with all the environmental monitoring that I've been doing. You know, the federal government has got some pretty ambitious plans around the national environmental information agenda at the moment. You know, they're looking at in the statements that Tanya Plebe, Minister Tanya Plebersek has put out is about setting up the equivalent of the Bureau of Meteorology for Environmental Information. So that's a really interesting Amazing. Context. Yeah. Because if you haven't, you know, as we were talking about before, if you haven't got the data and you haven't got it measured in a way that people can make, you know, robust decisions around, you know, that's not great. So, and Australia's trying to make sure that, you know, how we talk about the five eyes, we've been hearing about the five eyes about defence as it relates to things globally. You know, there's equivalent forums like that for environmental information because, you know, the environment doesn't really respect lines on maps and things. So I think there's some really interested on, on the federal government's agenda on moving environmental information at the moment yeah brilliant and so when you consider an opportunity to contribute in that way you must have a holy crackers moment how where would I begin how would I approach this where would I start and given the other collaborations and the complexity of work that you've already brought together I want to lean in now in the conversation to understand what happens on the inside of you we've talked a lot about the the problems you solve in the in the external world I want to know about the internal world of Bronwyn Hodge when you have those holy crackers moments you're leaning into those complex problems where do I begin how do you approach that what goes on on the inside of you yeah, so I think it's, I'll, I'll reflect, you know, those kind of examples I gave before there, the things that are in my mind in terms of, you know, as I think about how, holy crackers, how do I go about this, is first of all, you've got to spend a lot of time asking, trying to refine your questions to ask people to, to actually understand what's kind of going on. 
And I think you've got to spend a fair amount of time not going to people just like you. You've got to actually really go to people that you don't usually interact with. And I've found, I've found that when I've been in an organisation, some people find that very confronting because this is this is operating as a leader with a growth mindset, mm. not a leader with, with a fixed mindset. It's so and easy to talk about having a growth mindset. It's so challenging on the internal experience when you're experiencing that discomfort of not knowing, the admission of not knowing, the inviting people into conversation where we're genuinely exploring concept, concepts for the first time we don't have predetermined answers can be quite a confronting internal experience. Yeah, and I think that I think the other thing I've seen is the con- confrontation it gives for those around me that you know when you know I you know having been in higher education there's probably you know there's probably a balance in there whether people are growth or fixed mindset and seeing people struggle and how you help support people that think you're off with the fairies when you what you know hurry up get up with the answer we already know the answer to this why are you going speaking to people externally you know we are who we are we're renowned for this why are you going talking to other people about what we should be doing so I think that for me that's been some of the most confronting issues is when people are actually not supporting you in having a growth mindset for these big transdisciplinary kind of initiatives if you Mm -hmm. go in with a fixed mindset not you know you're not going to go anywhere and I think often I was told when I was doing these large-scale things oh you'll never be able to pull that together no one no one's all going to get on the same page with that blah 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 but I think it's about how you have people craft what the page shape and size is that that's what growth mindset is is you're adapting what's on the page as you go as well that you you have to start with often call it a straw person you know you start you have to start with a proposition or a pitch for people because they can't connect with it but they know that they've got an eraser and a pencil to help you shape it and I think that's the that's kind of the magic of the growth mindset of how you adapt your thinking so it can get more expansive and inclusive and I, I think the other thing that is important when you're doing these things is how you give a sense of belonging for people within that initiative. So I think sense of belonging when you're in an organisation, that's probably another topic we can talk about, but sense of belonging belonging when you're developing up these initiatives is really important too. So you can... I guess that's the moment where people choose in this ambiguity, in the complexity, in the unknown, the discomfort of leaning in with a growth mindset which, by the way, is the work of Carol Dweck, and I'll include a link in the show notes about fixed versus growth mindsets. But there's something that's required on the inside of a human to continue to lean into that complexity. And I do agree that a sense of belonging can encourage them to buy in and lean in and continue down the path of exploration as opposed to retreating back to the known, retreating to what we already you know, know that I can feel comfortable and certain about. Yeah, I think it's finding a way to be, you know, I've had to find a way to be respectful of, okay, it's all too, you know, you're going to go, you know, go float a boat somewhere else and that that's okay, you know. Yes, yes. And I've had to, you know, I've had to learn about not being, so bitterly disappointed that yeah people don't get it you know why can't they get it it's okay they're they're just not ready for it yet there's keep involving I kept involving people in conversations but you know there is a point where for some they're just not going to you know they're they're just not wired for this stuff but that's okay but interestingly when I was doing these programs of work the, the people that really engaged strongly, particularly within the university sector, were women, and it was mid-career women. Interesting. So I found that really, I should have collected data on it. Shouldn't you? Have? <laughs> I should have collected data on it. So there's a project out there, anyone who's listening. I think there's something about this kind of endeavour that women respond to. So I don't know if it's like the SDG kind of focus, if it's the collaborative diversity inclusion and belonging bit but yeah, there's if you had to hypothesize what would what would be your best guess I think it's 
probably the diversity and belonging and listening bit. Mm. I'm wondering if mid-career women, particularly if they've had a career break, which is often the case, perhaps not for us, but for others, where they're returning to a career after raising children, for example, and they're genuinely, I'm wondering if that's an opportunity in our careers to be genuinely open-minded about what's possible and what's next for us. So, yeah, yeah. Mm, what with that? We've just okay. up a research project. I better start working on it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Looking for collaborators. <laughs> All right. So I guess I want to dig in a little bit further into the interior experience of leaning into uncertainty. And given the size of the challenges around the sustainable development goals, and given that you know you are constantly needing to lean into that growth mindset, that not knowing. How do you stay committed, passionate and inspired? How do you stay energised? Requires energy. Yeah, no, because often people are taking the energy from you. So, you know, that's that's the thing. Although I do know, I, I know that often what, when I get together with people, I'm someone who tried, somehow I suck the energy out of everyone for myself (laughs) in a good way, in a good way. So I think that, I think a big part of the energy bit is, you know, having the commitment of the organisation and the leaders around you that says, yep, Bromen, it's tough, just keep going. What if you don't have that? Yeah, well, when you don't have it, I think you've got to put on your walking shoes. Yeah, right. I like it. Yeah, so I think. I think that's really important that if you're not able to get that kind of, you know, that energy and the mojo and you think that maybe, you know, that the system isn't kind of working with you, 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 in the end you have to make some decisions because I think that's where if you don't move, that's where you go through to burnout because you're just spinning on a wheel and I think you're, you're more prone to burnout you're probably not looking after all those things around self-care. You probably haven't, you know, you're not getting to because mm. you're having that work so hard. Mm. And, you know, the the politics within an organisation can be really hard to navigate when, you know, things are mm. being supportive. So I think it takes it takes a lot of courage to to recognise that, you know, the context and the environment that you're in is so important. And and I think we, we should celebrate people that, you know, when they leave organisations kind of on their own terms because of what they're trying to achieve for themselves. And when there's this great alignment between an organisation and a, and, a, and a set of people, you know, things go really, grow really well. And when that's not happening, and I know in my leadership roles, um, in all four organisations, you know, I, I've been the one who's often had to speak to people and saying, maybe this bus isn't the one that's really going to give you what you need. It's not about the organisation being wrong. It's not about you being wrong. It's just not this kind of bridged alignment. Yeah. And I think, you know, being authentic with people when that's happening is so important. And I think often leaders don't think about their roles of it's okay for people to leave. It's okay, yes. you know, when because for whatever reason the organization's strategies in another direction or the person, you know, realizes that their boat's going to get floated somewhere else. I don't think we really we often see that as failure or something's gone wrong, whereas actually is something to be celebrated. Yes. I think we can often invest a lot of time and energy into trying to gain that commitment from the leadership of the organization that we're in on the particular challenge that we're we're trying to tackle. And at the same time, that's unknowingly we're limiting ourselves from exploring opportunities that are better aligned for us in the outside world and that we can you know create that narrative about what we choose to lean into if we have the courage to leave those environments that aren't aligned with us that we know perhaps in this lifetime we may not be able to mature in our direction or maybe they don't want to be matured in our direction so I think that really does require courage yeah. Yeah. Let's go a little bit further to the interior of you. This is, I guess, I want to give our listeners access to 
how your heart and mind works around self-care and how you keep yourself well and healthy and energized as you continue to lean into these long-term problems, which let's face it, won't be solved in our lifetime, the scale of the problems that you're, that you're leaning into. How do you keep yourself well and personally healthy? Mm. Now, I think it's something that I don't have the, a magic formula. So I think it's, uh, this is what I tried. This is what I tried <laughs> to do. I think one of the things that I had to learn pretty quickly was not to fill my diary up with busyness because it's very easy to fill your diary up with busyness. You know, often you have people that support you that feel that their job is to keep you busy. Make sure people that are helping you organise, you know, your day or your week or your month, that they understand how you want to program things for yourself. Mm -hmm. What does your diary look like when it's not filled with busyness? What's the ideal thing? Yeah, I think the the ideal thing thing is that I like to have reflection time at the beginning and the end of the day. So there's, you know, there's blocked out times where I choose what I do between before nine o'clock in the morning and I choose what I do after four o'clock. So that's kind of a zone where no one's making those kind of decisions for me. Mm. Because I think that, you know, that the, you know, those aspects of mental self-care of that's when I'm going to be reading something that or listening to something that'll help me get inspired. So, you know, I, I, my kind of social media searching is, you know, is following people that I respect around their different views on, you know, different things to do with leadership or things to do with SDGs or whatever. So that's the kind of time where I'm being inspired by reading or listening to different things. You know, that's when I'm making sure I'm keeping up to, you know, what's happening with, you know, government policy and stuff because it's kind of inspiring my mind. It's kind of, it's work-related, sure, but it it's not, I'm not delivering on anything. I'm just, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about things. I think the other thing that's really important for me is the kind of social self-care. I get a lot, really helps me a lot in how I nurture my relationships with my family and friends. Yes. You know, and that's... You know, I've had to learn with time, you have to be present when you're present. Yeah. <laughs> so my husband gave me a lesson once about what it meant to be present when you were present. So, Are you I willing think, to share that? Oh, I think it was just him saying that uh, I was travelling a lot for work. I'd be away at least three, at least three days. And I'd be here on the weekends. But he could see, you know, I, 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 he could see that my mind wasn't switching off from work. And so he had to shake me a little bit, and I was like fortunate enough that he, he, you know, he gave me a bit of a gentle nudge about being there for him and the rest of the family as well. So that was very generous of him. Um, I always talk about in when I do talks about you know picking your partner wisely, and I've been very fortunate to have an amazing uh, partner in life in Shane. And I think my with my friends as well, it's having people you trust to express how you really feel about <laughs> something. And because when you're in kind of leadership roles, you've got to be, you know, you, this, it can be, they talk about it being lonely and often it's about, you know, sometimes you can't speak about things because of the HR context or how saying how you really feel doesn't really help anybody. And mm, so mm. having people in your life that'll, really listen I don't want them to solve how I'm feeling angry or perplexed or whatever it's just I need someone to listen to it that loves me so I think that that's a really big important part is my social self-care that's that's designed into my diary that's for sure and and there's the there's the stuff that everyone tells you to do that maybe I don't know people well according to all the healthcare statistics people don't pay enough attention to it but sleep I do really make sure I have a bit of a routine about sleep and switching off and switching on and what I do before I go to bed and when I wake up. So, and can I ask what that looks like for you? Yeah. So for for and that's where a lot of our kind of devices could help us with all this kind of stuff. So I regularly kind of clock off at ten ten thirty not using devices or anything I actually have a physical book I have I'm reading where the crawdads sing at the moment and and so it's having stuff that helps me I actually have to have stuff that helps me kind of ramp down mm. 
Uh, How much sleep do you look to get to to get every night? Yeah, six to seven. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think that really, I found that's the one thing that I have to work at, and I find that when I'm, you know, when I am working, Saturdays is my day of. I do not, I won't even read about what's happening with anything to do with work at all. Saturdays are my days where I just, that's the social self-care day. Yes. Where I'm going out and seeing people or things like that. Yes. Yeah. So sleep is the one thing that I've found really makes a big difference for me. Mm. Any tips on getting that quality? So you've got your no devices after 10, 1030, the reading to get the quality of sleep. What have you noticed that's worked for you? I think it's also it's actually I you know it's the the context for the room too. So I think it's you know I've the room's got all the right chill kind of factors in it in terms of the temperature you get it at and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So I, I think it's just having a really nice kind of environment to sleep in that it hasn't got you know all your devices in it, all that kind of stuff that's about work. It might the uh, and, you know, it's not my lounge room either. It's the place where I sleep. Mm, I get it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm curious, at the end of every every episode, we ask what are the two or three most important things being required of you as a leader in bringing about positive change in the world? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, as a, you know, as a as a leader, you're not a leader if you don't have followers. And you know, some some of it's forced on them, of course, because they're they're in your team. But I think more generally, it's about you know, when you're a leader, you've you've got to be able to set the vision and the strategy, and you have to be able to communicate it really well. So I think a leader with followers means that that you know they want to follow you so you're clear on what the roles are that they need to do what they're accountable for and that you know you're you're communicating with them you know often as well so I think that's an important bit it's it's that it's probably more a servant leadership kind of thing for me is that knowing as a leader you've got followers and there's there's a contract between you and them and it's not them working for you it's actually the other way around um, I often think that organisational charts are written the wrong way. They've got the CEO at the top. Usually I put the staff at the top and the CEO at the bottom, actually, just to remind everybody. That's kind of how it goes. So the second kind of point I think is having a bias for action. I think people expect of their leaders if the, if there's action that's needed in the end, you know, there's some things that have to bubble up to you as a leader and whether that's addressing, you know, negative culture or issues that are going on in your team, whether it's, you know, representing them to to senior levels of management is important as well. So I think this bias for action of when things aren't going right, you, you need need to address it. And I, I think I think the third thing really is being very authentic. And I know sometimes people use the word vulnerable. I don't know if I kind of subscribe to being vulnerable. I think it's just being authentic in terms of I, I think I'm someone because I, you know, you've got you've probably heard I've got a growth mindset. And so I'm adaptable in terms of I'll always go in with a proposition, but I kind of want people to kind of change my mind really. Mm. So I think that kind of context is really important that mm. you are able to adapt because I think I've learned a lot from leaders when they haven't been good leaders. And there's a lot of learn. I always t- take say to people, just if some, if you're not having a great experience, there's still a learning in that of maybe that's not the right style for how you want to interact as a leader as well. So I think there's interesting things to learn for when things aren't going well either. Mm, brilliant. So those three things, having followers, and to do that, you need to be able to set the vision and the strategy, having a bias for action. I love that. All too often I see leaders sit on issues for too long until the issue goes away and then they don't end up taking the action. It's not, not great for followership either. And then that authentic, adaptable approach. Brilliant. Actually, I've just, I'm just going to take the opportunity to ask another question. For leaders of organisations listening to this who are leaning into 
environmental, social or governance change or leaning in towards the SDGs. What's one piece of powerful advice that you can offer them about leaning into these big complex challenges? What's some, some parting advice? Yeah, I think you'll, from a sustainability angle, you'll always have the sustainability experts ready and willing to help you. But are they the ones that are really going to change the dial? So I'd encourage you to think about bringing in economists, business model innovation people, social scientists, because in the end, this is all about people changing what they do. And I think there's a fair bit of lip service given to engaging those disciplines in around the sustainable development goals. And I'd really encourage people, you know, what does it look like when they are tangibly engaged and making a difference in what you're trying to do? Brilliant. That's great advice. Thank you. I'm glad we covered that. Roman, thank you so much for sharing your passion with us, your leadership approach and some of your inner world with us today. If our listeners would like to follow you, they can do so on LinkedIn and via Twitter at Bronwyn Harch. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Ange. Really great opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Professor Bronwyn Harch about how to approach solving the biggest, thorniest, most complex problems facing the world today. What I most enjoy about Bronwyn's approach is her authenticity, her groundedness in the data that, and her ability to go straight to the heart of the matter connecting people and her generosity in the way that she shares her approach and shares her connections for the greater good is something that we can all be inspired by. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Secret Life of Leaders. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We would love for you to share this podcast with friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested and inspired by its content. You can follow me, Angela Koning, on LinkedIn or Instagram. And until next time, lead yourself well and everything else falls into place.